I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. The Vatican announced on Tuesday that it had settled a lawsuit against the Italian clothing group Benetton for using an image of Pope Benedict XVI kissing the imam of Cairo's renowned mosque in one of its advertising campaigns. A Dublin-based Muslim group is in advanced discussions to develop a €40 million Euro Islamic cultural centre, including a substantial mosque at Clongriffin on the northern fringes of the city. Also in Dublin last Saturday, the Church of Ireland Synod finally passed a motion affirming that faithfulness within marriage is the only normative context for sexual intercourse. That's a story to which we'll be returning. Last week, we brought you a report on women religious in the United States. Sister Joan Chittister has been a Benedictine nun for more than 60 years. She's an author and a lecturer on human rights and women's issues and is one of the most outspoken and controversial figures in the American church. Earlier this year, while on a visit to Ireland, she gave an exclusive interview to Godslot producer Jerry McArdle, who began by asking her why she had become a nun. Why I'm asking the question, and it's all related to the person you are now, because I can remember um, as a kid, my uncle is a priest in the the States. um, He's he's about 94 now. When he came to Ireland, I would serve his mass, and he would say mass in the local convent. And I can remember these women, you know, gliding about the place and sort of plucking over him as a priest, you know, and serving us breakfast and doing all that. And even I was kind of slightly above them because I could go inside the sanctuary rails and they couldn't during mass. Absolutely. What possessed you to become a nun? Oh, um, well, in the first place, I'll tell you that I'm asked that all the time because Mm. somehow or other people are trying, it's like a dual focus camera Mm. and people are trying to get these two things to line up, you know? Uh, So the genuine story is this. My my Irish Catholic father died when I was uh, just about three and um, my mother took me to the funeral home against the best uh, wishes of her family. She was the youngest of 13, a large Irish Catholic family up on the hill. And uh, they, they thought it was terrible that, quote, the baby would be taken to a funeral home. And my young mother, who was about 22 or 23 at this time, said to them in salty Irish language, what's the matter with you? You're out of your mind. Um, this baby's father died. And she will grieve it and mourn it just the way the rest of us do. And she has to have uh, a, a notion that he's gone, that something has happened. What, what is she to think that he just got up one day and left her and never came back to play? I'm a very wise young woman. So when she took me in, she lifted me up. I thought my father was on a shelf. And she lifted me up. I had my little arms around her neck. And down there at the end of the coffin sat two things I had never seen in my life. And I said to my mother, face, Mommy, what are those? And she looked down and she said, those are sisters. They're very special friends of God's. And when we go home tonight and the angels come for Daddy's soul, they will say, this is Joan's daddy. He was a very good daddy. You take him straight to God. Well, do you know, Jerry, I know it seems ridiculous. That, that sentence is burned into my brain. And I said to myself, they are people who give, you know, daddy's soul to God. I spent the rest of my life crossing the streets. Uh, every time I'd see a nun, I'd race over to say hello. 
I have no horror stories about Catholic education. You know, not one. They loved us. They were funny. They were nice to one another. I found, and they were, when I look back now, I know that something else was operating for which I had no language. They were independent women. From, from my perspective, they were educated, they were smart, they were competent, they were administrators, they were probably everything that subconsciously I wanted to be. Then I met the Benedictines when I went to high school, and it was a matter I always said, uh, I, um, I came, I saw, they conquered. Ten days, ten days, I knew I was going to that semi-cloistered community. We had a wall around the place when I entered there. You couldn't go out by yourself. You couldn't, you couldn't ride in the front seat of a car with your father. It seems, it seems <laughs> absolutely unreal, I admit. But well, these... Sorry to cut across it. What age were you when you entered? 16. I entered at 16. I could hear the prayer coming out the chapel windows as I left the high school porch every single day. Uh, I saw them as a group go fly into chapel, and I heard the most beautiful stuff. And yet, at the same time, they were outrageously funny, these women. Funny, tough, smart, and um, very close to all of us kids. And they, I knew at the age of 14 I was a writer. Do you know why? Because one of those sisters took the entry essay that I wrote to get into high school came to my geometry classroom door, called me out and quizzed me. Who wrote that for me? I did, sister. Who helped you? Nobody, sister. You mean you wrote this all by yourself? Yes, sister. Tell me what it says. Okay. Down the line, she said, you be in the journalism room tonight at 3.30. And after that, it was all over. It's all I did. It was like getting plugged in to a battery someplace. So the, the answer to the question is that all from my earliest days sisters had been an important figure in my life I loved them I did not see their lifestyle as oppressive my uncles tried to tell me you can't go we love the sisters Joan but you can't go there what do you mean why can't I go because with your personality you'll never make it now you explain to me why all that was wrong except that it was supposed to be. What other, what other explanation do I have? And w when you actually entered, I, I mean, did you still feel the same, or was it suddenly, whoa, this is reality now? Well, again, there wasn't much reality for me. I entered September 8th, and on October 15th, I got polio. So after that, it was a struggle for four or five years, both to survive and to walk. And... Uh, yeah, there was there was an element of reality that set in, but in those days you, you entered with seven or eight of your peers at the same time. You had one another in a different way, and um, I still loved the prayer life. I still loved them, and I had come and wanted to stay. The big struggle was, would they keep me? Because they were afraid. Uh, one of the older women said she'll be back in a in a wheelchair by the time she's thirty five. We this this is wrong for us. We have no right quote to keep this child. It will ruin her life. So the whole thing is just a tangled skein. But some and there were uh, don't don't misunderstand because it was reality and the way 
we functioned as groups and the, the petty little neuroticisms that passed as religious life um, were, were just terrible. And after Vatican II, when somebody finally said to us, look at your life, does it make sense? Look, look at your found, what your founder wanted to do and the, what your order is supposed to be about and the way you're living it. Ask yourself, can you do what the founder wanted you to do living like this? That, that's, a, that's a loose translation, but it's an it's a honest translation. And you know that. Nuns everywhere, at least in the United States, we did what we were told, no matter what anybody says. The problem was nobody else was doing it at the same time. The priests didn't do it. The bishops didn't do it. The nuns sat down and did it and began to say, uh, why, why in heaven's name, if your vocation came from your home, would you not sit with your father who's driving you uh, uh, to school every day? We began to do, why would you not go home? Uh, walk in. I used to say you could use every gas station in the United States on a trip, but you weren't allowed to go in your own house, the place you had entered from to use the bathroom at that time. Those kinds of things we eliminated, and we became healthier, happier people. The whole community, you saw individuals begin to come up out of the evolutionary mud now with their own individual gifts. Instead of being interchangeable parts on a checkerboard, you began to ask sisters, have you ever wanted to teach math? Do you think you could do a good job? Do you like small kids or bigger kids? That kind of stuff. And so all of a sudden, when I was about uh, in my mid-20s, what had been terribly um, oppressive became terribly creative. Anything was possible, and I saw very clearly, very young, was the youngest member of our general chapters. I saw very, very clearly that um, this was closer uh, to Galilee than it was to Jerusalem, that this, this life had phenomenal, ju not just a prayerful base, but genuine human potential to do good for people who needed a hand up, as well as, remember Benedictines, we're the people who are always there when you come. We're the people who are always home. We still have a hundred sisters living together under one roof, and then about, um, well, I think there are about 80 at the monastery and about 20 in town because we have refused to leave our in-town monasteries for the poor. Uh, we lost our insurance, actually. We had a, a big frame building, and the company refused to insure us. So when everybody said that religious life was going to hell in a handbasket, the Erie Benedictines were building a new monastery seven miles on the other side of town. Um, that monastery is a big monastery. And our sisters still live together there, still pray three times a day and do two periods of, of Lexio or spiritual reading. And on, uh, in addition, have people in all the time. A huge guest process like any Benedictine monastery, any pace on the planet at any period in history. And on top of that, local uh, housing for the elderly and low income and handicapped and uh, um, all manner of retreat programs and hermitages for people. So it's a very active place, but it wouldn't have been that if it hadn't have been for that great period of, uh, of creativity. And 
I, I believe when I look back, you know, who is it, Jerry, you know better than I, who says, um, I think it was Kierkegaard, life, can, is always, life is lived forward but can only be understood backward. And when I stand back and say, what was really going on here? Uh, I'm a slightly used history teacher, and it's very clear what was really going on. It was truly a refounding moment. Now, you look at this, and even now I am convinced that in 50 more years, uh, religious life is not going to go away. It's a good life. It's it's a good life, doing good for people. And uh, I've been in I've been in the community 60 years. I have yet to hear one sister raise her voice to another. <laughs> 60, if you can say that 60 years later. You don't have to keep saying to people, this is a different kind of living together. Okay, let's, let's go, go on to Vatican II. Um, okay, you found it a very liberating experience, but I have another theory about it, and I'm just going to put it to you sure. and see, we'll see what yeah. you make of it. I mean, a lot of people seem to think that Vatican II was almost, you know, the Catholic Woodstock. And um, to me, I think it failed. I think it failed because... To me, they tinkered around with things like liturgy and they, you know, had a definition here, a definition there. Um, okay, fine, you were liberated to a certain extent, you could wear a civilian dress, but really your position as a woman yeah. didn't alter. Um, contraception, they dithered did about that. I personally believe that um, Paul VI's heart was in the right place. I think history will probably view him as a saint, but I think he got hijacked by the old guard because there were big financial scandals. And my theory is that they hijacked him and said, look, we'll get you out of the financial scandal. Now stop tinkering with contraception. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. And thus the other things, because I think you had to start with women's rights before you could get around to even thinking about homosexual people. You had to start mm, with women. Mm, mm. Uh, and it, it just didn't achieve that for me. Well, I think what you've done there is you've tied too many topics into Vatican II. Uh, those are all independent topics. Uh, we don't know yet if Vatican II failed or not, but but uh, there is a struggle now. You, you're quite right about the lack of preparation, the lack of education. Too much was taken for granted. Uh, did you ever hear one priest in one pulpit preach one document of Vatican II? No, no, you didn't. It didn't happen. So it happened up here. As I said at the beginning of this, uh, <laughs> The nuns were told what to do, and we did it. When I look back now, I couldn't see anybody else around us doing it except the educational system, you know, on college levels. Now, Vatican II was all theological. The things that you're pointing to, like the, the contraception issue, that was completely independent of Vatican II. It just happened to come along at the same time. There was no change in church structures. There, there was nothing that happened to allow the creativity. So a monster was created that didn't need to be a monster. So are you right? Did it fail? I, I would say you are definitely right. It has, it has been blocked, and it is being hijacked in many places because of the discomfort that was left, the lack of preparation of us all going through all of this at the same time and allowing this. So you have pockets and of, of uh, places nationally. You have pockets of people, the nuns who were, forgive me, far more formally educated 
than most people and even many priests because women weren't permitted to get degrees in theology. Do you realize that? Until after Vatican II, a woman was not permitted to sit in a classroom with a Catholic man studying Catholic theology. Then all of, So where, what were we educated in? We were educated in the humanistic subject. So when we went into our general um, chapters, we brought our own psychiatrists and psychologists and lawyers and historians. And when they began to, quote, examine your life and your history, they would get up and tell you this happened during feudalism. This, this has nothing to do with the early dimensions of the order. So you have, it was so uneven, Jerry. It just, the organization of the review of the church in the midst of all that uh, was never really uh, completed. And everybody, now we have pockets of resistance as well as pockets of emergence and we're 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 still dealing with that we're looking for a synthesis and it hasn't it has only it has begun because it has to be done be done to live together you know but it hasn't been done in any um formal spiritual intellectual way so you have every stream you mentioned is correct it doesn't, all those streams do not stem from the same source, but they were um, exaggerated by that source. And we have not resolved them yet. You're quite mm-hmm. correct. I mean, you asked me the question there did I ever hear a priest preaching on a document of Vatican II? The only thing I recall is in recent years hearing a priest um, in London how we all got it wrong about Vatican II, mm-hmm. that if we thought mm-hmm. that it had given liberation on this, that, or the other, we were totally wrong. Yeah. That's not what that document said oh. at all. Well, that's become the new line. You know, it's it's an attempt at reinterpretation. And it's going to take... Uh, the church historians will tell you that their uh, their mantra is no, no council is ever accepted in less than 100 years. Now that makes sense to me in a universal church. Am I to think that uh, that uh, Vatican II means the same thing in China as it does in Chicago? I don't think so. So you know, all of this is going through the mill now. The grinding is being done now, and the my, my own approach to it has been: we we must we we must stay as close as we can to the fundamentals, to the basic, to the tradition, to to Jesus. And all these other things are cosmetic to begin with. They'll, they'll take care of themselves. We've always been tinkering with the liturgy. We tinkered from one language to another for 2,000 years. Tinkering with the liturgy is not a problem. <laughs> what, what is a problem is um, confusing the institution and Jesus, the institution and the Gospels. Those are being where we are at a massive change point in history. I call it a crossover moment in time. And it's the, the closest thing to it is the 13th century and the 16th century. And when, when all institutions then were up for grabs too, we can't name a dimension of life in Ireland or, or in the West or any place that isn't now suddenly open to question, yeah. which would have happened Vatican II or no Vatican II. That has nothing to do with the fact that the role of the family has changed. The roles of men and women have changed. 
the um, structure of marriage is changing as we watch our own children change it. Now, where is that going? Do we wish that we didn't have that upheaval? I do. I've lived in it all my life. I don't need one more day of it, but I expect it. And uh, I, I can only know, what, what, where is faith in this? Um, the Holy Spirit is in this. God is in this with us. And our expectation is to work it through like you work marriage through, like you work any sacrament, like you work your baptism through, like you work confirmation through. When do I stand and when do I not? What's worth standing for? Um, all of that is in process. It's a holy making time. It's a, it's a dark time with a light behind it. It's a good time. Uh, who is Emerson th- says, I think, uh, all times are good times if we only know what to do with them. And <laughs> knowing what to do with this one seems to be our problem. But I have a funny feeling that we're doing a pretty good job with it. Uh, we, we haven't approached each other on horseback yet, as they did in the Crusades. So there's hope. Uh, we're doing pretty well. If we can restrain the invective and the judgments... If we can accept, I know that the people who think differently than I do think just as well as I do, think just as caringly as I do. They care about the church as much as I do. They just simply have to believe that I am where I am because I care about the church too. When we get to that point, all of this is going to be all right. Why I'm very happy to be talking to you is because... um, even though I am a Vatican II skeptic, um, I, I do think that you know the sisters were the ones who took whatever crumbs Vatican II allowed and ran with them, mm-hmm. and really ran with them. Mm-hmm. However, here we are, and we're still having the tired old arguments against women's ordination. We're still having, Jesus didn't ordain women, therefore the Pope cannot ordain women. The apostles were not women. They seem to forget about Mary Magdalene there. But, um, and Mary and and Mary herself, who was mm-hmm. the first woman mm-hmm. priest, mm-hmm. because she brought the body and blood yeah. of Jesus to earth. So therefore, she was the first woman priest in my book. Um, how that must be so frustrating for you, you know? I think you'd make a damn good priest. Well, I'm not called to the priesthood, and so I can afford to speak about it. Uh, I'm not. I'm not selling anybody's agenda. I really believe that I have met women who are pastoral figures and holy figures. Uh, beyond exemplar, and I believe when they say they know they are called. So, and whether they know or whether they're right or not is irrelevant. It is a question we are refusing to discuss. We won't even discuss the question of the ordination of deaconesses, despite the fact that we have centuries of history on that issue. This is an anti-woman question. This is a sexist question that they are masking as a theological question. Now, if we ever sat down at a table and they admitted their real problems, it's not. Uh, the, the apostles are, are, are a, a, a symbol of transition from the 12 tribes of Israel to the 12 tribes of Catholicism. Any good uh, scripture scholar, starting with Sean Frain, will tell you that. There's no question about that. This, that's, that's, a, that's a misuse or an ignorant use 
of a, of a fundament of, of, um, of church that is absolutely essential, an essential part of the discussion. We're talking about baptism. We're talking about discipleship. We're talking about biology. Is a woman a full human being or not? Is a woman human or not? I just came from a meeting in Kenya. You got here at the wrong or the right time. I sat in a tent with 106 of whom were uh, uh, from the Congo. Those women told us what has just happened to them is still happening to them. They told us about being raped in front of their own husbands and sons, raped, stabbed, humiliated, and then robbed. When they left, when the robbers and the rapists left the house, the man threw the woman out. She's starving in some, what we call a refugee camp, we genteel people, which is another rape camp for all these women refugees. Ask the UN. Don't ask Joan Chedister. Look at the UN figures on this. I asked the question in the group. These are, this is a Christian country. We're not talking about tribal voodoo. I said, what in heaven's name justifies this. The Congolese woman, French-speaking, who spoke back was very interesting. I said, how, what, how can this possibly be happening on such a large scale? It, it must be derived from someplace, and it must be justified by some concept. What is it? When she, when she answered my question through an interpreter, at least the interpreter answered me as if she was uh, giving me the answer rather than the cause. And in giving me the answer, she gave me the cause. She said two things. One, we have to begin to believe that women are human. And two, this is the one that got me, and I block it every time I try to say it. And two, um, men have to realize women don't want it. And I sat there, and my childhood, went in front of my face. I said, oh, dear, loving Jesus, help me. Nothing has changed. Women are lower than men. When you can pay a woman 30 cents less an hour than you pay a man for doing the very same work, um, you are in deep immorality. It's called stealing. It's called exploitation. It's called greed and lust and a lot of other things. And it's got to be faced for the, for, for the sake of the marriages of the next century because you can see they're having trouble. Young women are getting the message. And marriages are now being delayed longer and longer and longer because intuitively she knows her life is over if she gets into it too early. Now, we don't want that. We, we want good, solid friendship marriages, loving parents, good homes. But they're in great transition right now. And we are not going to stop them by uh, accusing this younger generation until this older generation is willing to sit down at a table, half men, half women, and face their sins. And this church has to face its sin against women. All, we now have a certain strain of talk even at the papal level. Has anything happened? Not one thing has changed. Not one thing. So how are we going to convince women that anything is really, that they, that they have been seen worthy of discipleship?
So you have a you have a huge theological baptismal uh, question under the ordination question, and you won't solve it with ordination. That you know, I say to myself, I'll tell you this much. I'll tell you straight. If they m- required me to show up at the cathedral tomorrow to be ordained, I would not go. A, I'm not called to the priesthood. I started this this way. I am not a priest. B, I would not go further that system until that system sits down and looks back uh, at its own uh, and look at its own structures and at its own concepts and at its own teachings about men and women and decide where virtue lies. What is the logic, or is there any logic at all? Because it seems to me that it's more honoured in the breach than the observance. The ban on contraception, what's the thinking behind it? I mean, now, that every, every single drop of sperm is a potential human being. Is that, is that the, the, the logic behind well, it? Well, that's what they tell us it is. Okay. That's what they tell us it is. And yet there's a, a lot of biology to be mm. talked about there, too. In the attempt to honor life, we may not be moving with the same depth um, or sense of possibility uh, that that we move about other issues scientific. It looks to me like we're finally catching up with evolution faster than we caught up with Galileo. But, we, you know, I, I always say the church is not against birth control. The, the church is for arithmetic and against chemistry. But birth control is not what's in question here. It's, again, the method. And you have to look at that method quite biologically and ask if your philosophical statements about every, every drop of sperm being um, full of life. It's just not so. It's just not true. But, but the, the, you know, the, the distinction between artificial contraception and natural contraception or the rhythm method that, okay, God gets almightily offended with a bit of rubber, but he's not at all offended if you sit down with a calculator and a calendar and a thermometer. No. That doesn't offend no. him in the slightest. No. I know. That's what I'm trying to tell yeah. you. The whole question of, of the end of this, uh, it, is, it, it doesn't. It's, it's open to a lot of question and a lot of discussion, and very educated people are now raising those discussions. Um, I travel quite a bit, and I'm not going to tell you where I was, but recently I sat with uh, two nuns in a, um, um, what we would have called 10 years ago a missionary nation or something of that nature, and I asked them what they did. And they poured all this stuff out to me, and how are things going? And uh, uh, they told me that, and then they announced that they were opening a new clinic out in the valley. Oh, really? What's the clinic about? Okay, they told me that. And then I said, um, you know, do you get a lot of people? Oh, I said, well, what do they come for most often? One uh, nun looked at the other, and they looked at me, and they said, well... Um, AIDS. They all have AIDS. And I said, oh yes, I've, I've been through that whole area, so I wasn't surprised with that. Uh, that's kind of a given uh, for anybody who's, who's traveled at all. And I said, is it worse now than before? Is that what you're saying? Is it getting worse instead of better? And she said, uh, oh, it's the women now. I said, pardon me? 
She said, it's the women. Uh, all all the, the men um, sleep with anybody and everybody, and we have to, in behalf of those men, you have to realize that Western corporations are going into these places, setting up workshops, bringing the men out away from their home villages, uh, putting them in a, in a uh, tents and... and um, corrugated houses and then quote servicing them with the women they pick up someplace else then these guys go home and they're infected now the church says that they may not use condoms and i when when the sister said to me it's all the women now they get infected by their husbands and their babies get infected and i put my head back and shook my head you know, white woman from the Western world, and I said, I don't, like you, I don't get it. What is, what is at the bottom of this? I said, how is it that we are willing to let those women and those babies die or be chronically ill all their short lives, and we won't permit the use of condoms? Where is this getting stopped? And I put my head up like this, and and I, and I said, I looked down and I said, uh, and when people like me ask the question, simply ask an honest question, they call me a heretic. And I looked over at the two of them, frankly, Jerry, quite concerned that I might have said something shocking to them that they themselves had never. Each one of those nuns was crying crying. The tears were coming down their faces and their heads had dropped. And I said to myself, oh, dear holy God, Joan, they know. They know. They are the people ministering to what they think should not be happening. And they can't do anything about it. Now, someplace along the line, Jerry, yeah. what you're saying is dead true. All the conversations yeah. have been stopped. That's what I call obstruction. Yeah. It is possible, you know, for us to come to consensus if we are working for a consensus, if we're trying to understand what is best. It might take us 10 years of conversations. It might take us 20. But we should know that those conversations are happening Women are dying. Children are dying. Men are being exploited sexually, too, as well as physically. The whole place is in a mess because we are refusing to look at contemporary questions in the light of the faith. Next question, logical question. What's a sin? Well, as I understood it, I still think they've got the right idea. You know, that it's serious matter, and it's a lot of reflection, and it's full consent of the will, and that's why I doubt that there are that many of them. Mm. Really, among the average person, they don't get up in the morning to sin. But they are struggling an awful lot, and they they need to recognize their own struggles, and they need help through those struggles. Uh, I, I don't think that uh, I, I don't see Jesus as a sin-laden uh, presence among us. And I remember his words to the Pharisees, uh, you, you broods of vipers and hypocrites, you lay heavy burdens on the backs of others that you do not keep yourself. So two men who make love to each other, they're not going to fry for all eternity. Well, that's between them and God. That's not, that's, that's not me. I, I, I know that... Uh, 
um, I can remember for years wondering what all that was about and in my position not wanting to be asked in public because I didn't know. And I, the best you, thing you could say, me about, say about me at that time is that I didn't know. But I've watched the science heap up and I've, I'm at, ready to say uh, this is not a choice. I mean, the figures now are something like in 97% of all cases, what is, is that's another question. How do you deal then with what is that is? And um, again, it's not being discussed that I can see. Uh, we need we need science and theology and philosophy. We need a lot of things um, simply to call these people disordered, and and then to tell your your own gay priests not to say not to own their own sexuality. What kind of what kind of human development is that? I don't know. Um, I, it seems to be the latest preoccupation, though, uh, a preoccupation among so many. But the latest one seems to be because there's a move that gay people want not civil partnerships, but they're asking for marriage equality. They feel that that is a mm -hmm. basic human right. Uh, and this seems to be exercising our Holy Father and his Curia and mm -hmm. quite a lot of other people besides. The Church of Ireland at the moment is tearing itself apart over the issue yeah. because there's a man who's out and open, who has his partner, mm -hmm. and they had a civil mm -hmm. partnership. And now it's become an issue, whereas before it was mm -hmm. don't ask, don't tell. Um, so is there a resolution to this? I mean, do you have a, a stand on it in, in any way? No, I don't actually. I I I think time is the resolution here. We all need more education. I mean, if if you have too firm a position right now, it seems to me that um, you've made yourself judge and jury about an emerging issue. It's always been there. Obviously, it's always been there. It is it is now confronting us. It's there, and we see an awful lot of goodness there. And we see an awful lot of pain there. And we, uh, I, I read, I don't get my theology off of bumper stickers, but I did think this one was it was impacting something about, you know, make love not war, you know, uh, which which is the sin here? What what is the sin if we're going to talk about sin? So uh, when you when and when you get it down to what is a marriage and what is a civil partnership. Uh, it would be easy to say, um, and I think a lot of people will, and I know I flirted with the answer myself, look, I understand the question of civil partnership, uh, but, but do we need a special uh, term for this and another one for this? Well, I can't answer that, but I do believe that it's got to be part of a conscious and civil discussion. But I mean, if, if you go back um, through history and go back even to the Bible, and there's this wonderful notion that Jesus instituted the sacrament of marriage when he was at the Feast of Cana and he mm -hmm. blessed water and turned it into wine. To me, I think what's important about that story is that Mary said, do what he tells you. That, to me, is the point mm -hmm. of that story. But, I mean, marriage was nothing else but civil partnership. That's the history of marriage. Yes. That's well, how it came to be. Well, and, and, and marriage, <clears throat> including in the, in the Christian tradition, uh, was multiple um, uh, liaisons 
for centuries. I mean, it was Christian marriage that allowed the owner of the of the feudal manor to sleep with the bride the first night of the marriage. Bois de Seigneur. Yes, mm-hmm. come on, and it, that's been that's been sweetly suppressed too. All of those things. Um, it, it, it wasn't that Henry VIII was sleeping with everybody that was the problem. The problem was that somehow or other, the, the, the whole question of what that civil document was about what was a problem. It's always been a question. That it's, that it's a question, again, shouldn't surprise us. And when, when I was a kid, if, um, if a mixed couple walked down the street in the United States, they were a candidate to be killed. You couldn't. We said that you couldn't marry a, a white and a black. Well, we are. And we did, and we now have the browning of the globe. I keep theorizing that we'll only have one little body of whites left in 100 years. They'll be in Lapland, and it'll be their biggest tourist draw to go back to go up there and see somebody who's really white. I mean, the whole thing is all coming out of the marriage questions, and we didn't like them. You couldn't marry a, a noble and a commoner either. There was another change in marriage laws. Quit acting as if everything has was given to us in in the year uh, 33 or something. Uh- I know this is a question that you get asked all the time, and I know it irritates you, but I'm going to ask you anyway. You've been accused of being pro-abortion. Tell yeah. me where... Well, it doesn't. It, what irritates me is that the answer doesn't seem to be acceptable. I have said, and uh, it's in print uh, uh, for years, uh, I am opposed to abortion as a birth control method of choice, but I refuse to uh, uh, judge any woman who has one because it is very difficult to understand how it can be that uh, a church that recognizes you, you can't talk to me about the absolute sanctity of, mer- of, of life as long as uh, you allow people to uh, murder in self-defense murder for the sake of the state murder as um, part of your legal obligation to an army but never, ever, under any circumstances, no critical physical circumstances at all, allow um, intervention in the life process when that's held by a woman. When men are in charge of lives, thousands of lives, all life at one time in a nuclear world, uh, we have mitigating factors in every arena and separate ways to judge them. When a woman is in a position of carrying life, there, there is never, under any circumstances, including her own death and the loss of the mother of the rest of the children and the wife of that man, there's never any willingness whatsoever to think that there might be a few cases where this is not, where it's unfortunate, where it is undesired, where it is where we're um, unwilling to do it, but where we are willing to admit that this is not a grave moral act. You're the founder of an organization called Bennett Vision. What exactly is that? Well, it was uh, my attempt to try to, believe it or not, I see myself as a bridge builder. I do not see myself as as a great destroyer of uh, either past or future. And it occurred to me as the years went by that... um, 
in in the course of Vatican II, whatever is good about it or not good about it, uh, there was some slippage, there was leakage. We were hemorrhaging the symbols, and we were, in essence, the the uh, uh, the the far right was claiming the symbols, the cross, the stations, uh, the novenas, and it looked as if that this I hate labels, Jerry. So this is hard language for me. This looked as if uh, those who uh, who were comfortable in a Vatican II theology had simply abandoned everything here, and when they were being accused of that, and I said, "No, nah, wait a minute." And I sat down and began literally to rewrite the oldest of the uh, of the symbol system that had raised us. I have uh, uh, I, I wrote on the rosary. I'm a Benedictine. I must admit I really don't have a, a, a very serious um, uh, Marian spirituality. Uh, meaning, I didn't come from a family that said three rosaries a day or anything. But I respect it, and I love it, and I have a rosary, and I've used my rosary. But I saw the the language that was being used to explain the mysteries of the rosary or to explain what happened in the Stations of the Cross or to look at the whole concept of a novena or what we were praying for. So I sat down and I began to write materials designed to to bring the traditional spirituality into a contemporary um, language and environment. I've been doing it now for almost 30 years. I know you're working on a book on the, at the moment, but the last book that I think you published was on happiness, which I'm reading at the moment. Final question is, what's, what's the secret of happiness? Tell us what happiness is. Passion and purpose. That is happiness. Aristotle's very clear about that. You must be involved in, uh, he calls it, virtuous activity. Or as my mother would have said uh, when I was younger, don't be good for nothing. You know, you've got to be good for something. So it's the difference between this narcissistic kind of piety that um, it makes religion uh, one great spiritual spa, uh, a jacuzzi for warming yourself in and religion that follows Jesus from uh, Jerusalem to Galilee. Sister Joan Chittister in conversation with Jerry McArdle and an extended version of that interview is available as a podcast. The announcer will give details about how to access it after we finish. That's our programme for this week. If you'd like to comment on anything you heard tonight or during the series, our email address is godslot at rte.ie, our phone number 01208 and our postal address, the godslot, RTE Radio 1, Dublin. Four. Until next Friday evening at the same time, Slon is Banacht. Cause I gotta have faith. Mm, I gotta have faith.